On Tuesday, April 11th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, alongside Harvard's Asia Center and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, hosted a seminar about Vietnam, the U.S., and the future of the Asia-Pacific region with Ted Osius, U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam, John Feiner, Institute of Politics Fellow and former Chief of Staff and Director of Policy Planning at the U.S. Department of State, and Dr. Myra Rapuber, a Senior Fellow with the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. The talk was titled, The View from Hanoi, The Future of U.S.-Vietnam Relations. Nicholas Burns, the Roy and Barbara Goodman Family Professor of the Practice of Diplomacy and International Relations at HKS, moderated. It's a great pleasure to welcome you. Um, we have an all-star panel. We're going to discuss Vietnam, the United States, and the future of Asia. Those are at least three big topics, or they may be two topics if you combine the first two, Vietnam and the United States. And I'm really proud that we have Ambassador Ted Osius here, the United States Ambassador to the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, and Mira Rapp Hooper, who's one of the great experts in the United States on Asia, on security problems, at the Center for a New American Security, and our very own John Feiner, senior fellow at the Institute of Politics, uh, who is here to talk about United States policy towards Asia. So let me just say a word about each of these people uh, to honor them for their service. Uh, Ted Oshis, Ambassador Oshis, is a career member of the Foreign Service. He and I just remembered we met 32 years ago in Cairo, Egypt, when we were both a little bit younger than we are today. Uh, prior to his service as United States Ambassador to Vietnam, Ambassador Osius was Associate Professor at the National War College. He was also a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic International Studies. He's had an extraordinary career in the Foreign Service. He serves as our Deputy Chief of Mission, the number two official at the United States Embassy in Jakarta in Indonesia. He was Political Minister Counselor at the Embassy in New Delhi, India. He was Deputy Director of the Office of Korean Affairs at the State Department. He was Regional Environment Officer for Southeast Asia and the Pacific in the age of climate change, that's a very important position. He helped to open the U.S. consulate in Ho Chi Minh City in 1996 and was one of the first U.S. diplomats at the United States Embassy in Hanoi after we reopened that embassy after more than four decades of broken relations between our two countries. He's also served at the United Nations, the Holy See, the Vatican, and the Philippines. And he worked for um, Senator Al Gore before he joined the Foreign Service and he was a presidential intern at the United States Embassy in Cairo, where we met a long time ago. It's a real pleasure to have Ambassador Osius here. He's one of our great ambassadors in the field today. And we couldn't have a better person to talk about United States-Vietnam relations. Dr. Mira Rapp Hooper is a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. She was formerly at CSIS. These are two of the most important think tanks in Washington, DC. As I mentioned, she's an expert on Asia security issues, deterrence, nuclear strategy and policy, and alliance politics. In addition to the NATO alliance, of course, we have our East Asian alliance. She was previously a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her writings have appeared in multiple journals, and she's been quoted, of course, in all of our most important newspapers and magazines. Uh, Mira was also the Asia Policy Coordinator for the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, and um, 
So she was a compatriot of mine and of John on that Hillary Clinton campaign. And she holds a BA in history from Stanford University and an MA, MPhil, and PhD in political science. She's overeducated from Columbia <laughs> University. I forgot to mention, by the way, with Ambassador Osius, he's a graduate of Harvard College. So he's returning to his alma mater. He's also a graduate <laughs> of, along with the Kennedy School, the greatest public affairs school in the United States, the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International <laughs> Studies, where we're both graduates. So I forgot, Ted, to mention your academic underpinnings. And last but not least, John Finer was chief of staff to Secretary of State Kerry. He was director of policy planning, which is one of the key positions in policy making in the Department of State and has been since the Second World War. Before that, he worked for four years at the White House. He was senior advisor to the Deputy National Security Advisor, Tony Blinken. He was special advisor for the Middle East and North Africa and foreign policy speechwriter for Vice President Biden. He joined the Obama administration in 2009 as a White House fellow. John has a very interesting background for someone who served in such senior ranks in the government. He also was a working journalist at the highest levels. He was foreign and national correspondent at the Washington Post. He reported from more than 20 countries. He spent 18 months covering the war in Iraq. He was embedded with the U.S. Marines during the 2000, this is 1st Marine Division, I guess. Was first Marine during the 2000, my nephew flew, uh, he's a Harrier pilot, oh, flew okay. air cover for 1st Marines oh. in that invasion. Well, I'm grateful for that. And John served as one of those intrepid reporters. It's one of the first times we had done this in a long time. Yep. Who went into battle, went into combat, I should say, with the United States Marines. He was based in Baghdad during the tough years, 2005, 2006. And get this, he also covered the conflicts in Gaza in 2009, the Lebanon War with Israel in 2006, the 2004 U.S. presidential campaign, and this is my very favorite John Finer reporting coverage. Mine too, I think. The 2004 Major League Baseball playoffs. <laughs> John spent a year in Hong Kong as a Henry Luce Foundation scholar. He was there at the Far Eastern Economic Review. He has a law degree from a university in New Haven, Connecticut, Yale. He co-founded the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project. He has an MPhil in international relations from Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. And he has an undergraduate degree from Harvard College. So you have two Harvard graduates coming back. We have a Stanford graduate interspersed among them. Destroying <laughs> everything. And, and John was born and raised in Norwich, Vermont, which makes him a native-born member of Red Sox Nation. So um, we have a great panel. We were talking during the fire alarm. There's a temptation when Americans get together to talk about Vietnam to look back. And we may do a little bit of that today because this was a singular event in our modern history. 13 years of war, warfare, 58,000 Americans died, many more thousands wounded. One of the reasons that I'd be interested in everybody's rationale, one of the reasons I went into the Foreign Service or became interested as a teenager, I was too young to be drafted, uh, in foreign policy was because of the Vietnam War. I grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, 10 miles from here, and the war came into our community. We had Young men from our community die in the war as combat veterans. We had protesters come to Wellesley College. And so you saw this war that really tore us apart generation to generation in the 1960s and 1970s. But John and Ted and I have all been part of the process of reconciliation with Vietnam. Ted is ambassador. John working for the American Secretary of State who knows Vietnam best. 
Senator Secretary John Kerry. And I was present when we raised the flag in August 1995 when Secretary Christopher did to reopen the U.S. Embassy in Hanoi. So we'll look back a little bit, but as Ted reminded us, the Vietnamese are looking forward. They're a young country, they're a powerful country, they're a country with a great future. And, and I think the relationship that Ted and John worked on over the last eight years is really becoming a very important strategic relationship for both of our countries. So with that in mind, we thought we'd have a little conversation here, and we'll go to you for your questions. I want to ask all of you one question. They don't have one question for each of you. And the first question is, thinking about Asia, not just the U.S.-Vietnamese relationships, a lot of people say, I think with good reason, that the Asia-Pacific is going to be the arena of greatest importance to the United States for the next half century. With China, which is the central country in the region, we are, as a lot of people have said, we're both partners. We're partners on global economic stability and climate change. For instance, where well, we were on climate change until last week, until President Trump uh, vitiated the commitments that President Obama had made on climate. But we're partners with China, but we're also strategic competitors for military power. So I'd ask all of you, beginning ambassador with you, is this the most important relationship for Americans in this century, both in Asia but also with the People's Republic of China? Thanks. Uh, and let me just say a quick thanks to you, Nick. Um, young, young Nick Burns <laughs> urged young Ted Osius 32 years ago to think about attending SICE and maybe think about a career in the Foreign Service, and I haven't regretted a day. Thanks. Uh, China, I, I, my view is it's the relationship for at least the next 50 years, the most important relationship we have to deal with. I, I've been lucky over the last few tours to serve in India where we were working on creating a powerful partnership with the United States, Indonesia where we're working on creating a powerful partnership with the United States, and now Vietnam where we're working on creating a powerful partnership with the United States. So, uh, not surprisingly, I think powerful partnerships are kind of the way to go. Uh, that strengthening our alliances and building partnerships with nations in Asia that can make a difference in how we deal with a rising China, I think is crucial. Uh, I think if it's just the two of us in the ring, uh, the history would show that the results aren't going to be so great. And history would also show that when you can create a web of relationships, then it's possible to resolve differences, I think, in a more peaceful way. And so I think we have to strengthen those alliances, strengthen the partnerships, especially with uh, the nations that deal with China all the time and that are in the region. And because I'm uh, in Vietnam, Having even a smaller, smallish country, a country of 93 million, but a very scrappy one that has fought with China only recently, uh, that's a good country to have in working closely with the United States. And then the other observation I would make is the way we're able to do that very often, even though we're looking forward in this discussion, is to be honest about the past. That when you working with an India, and there I was working under the uh, Undersecretary for Political Affairs. Uh, we were honest about what had divided us from India, 
and we're enabled, because we were honest about it, we're able to move that relationship forward. In Indonesia, we were honest about the obstacles that had divided us for a long time. That allowed us to move forward. And I would argue in, that in Vietnam, because we've become, over time, scrupulously honest about the past, that's enabled us to have a really, really different security relationship and relationship across the board that wouldn't have been possible if we were uh, hung up and weren't able to overcome the past. Thank you, Ted. Uh, Mary, before I go to you, I have to be ecumenical here. I forgot to congratulate and thank the Ash Center for Democratic Government, Governance and Innovation for sponsoring today's lecture. Since I'm from the Belfer Center, we have to be <laughs> ecumenical. So thank you for the Ash Center's brilliant leadership of this uh, panel. Mira, Thanks so same much. question to you about the importance of Asia for the United States. So I, th I think the U.S.-China relationship is absolutely essential. And if I could give the new administration in Washington one piece of advice, it would be not to try to oversimplify that relationship in an effort to try to gain short-term traction on it. Um, and let me say a little bit about what I mean by that. I think that this new team uh, right out of the gate has taken something of a non-traditional approach to the U.S.-China relationship. Obviously, presidents come and go, and it is absolutely within their purview to rethink their approach um, to another power, and indeed another major power, as China now is. Uh, but what we've seen in the first few months has been some instincts that I think are somewhat outside the bounds of about 40 years of a lot of bilateral consensus on U.S.-China policy. We saw out of the gate an instinct uh, by the Trump administration to escalate with China over the one China policy, suggesting that it might hold that policy at risk in an effort to gain some kind of leverage with China. Um, and subsequently, we've actually seen it sort of tack back in a very different direction. Um, it has appeared in the last several months, and indeed in the run-up to the summit between President Trump and President Xi Jinping, that the Trump administration was looking to make some sort of short-term transactional deal with Beijing, or at least it sort of seemed this way on the surface. Uh, there was a lot of instinct to emphasize issues which are certainly important. The administration has zeroed in on North Korea as a central security uh, concern, and indeed it should be a central, if not the central security concern of this administration, uh, but it's surely not the only one. Uh, and the White House is also very concerned about the balance of trade with China, the trade deficit in particular. So in the lead up to the summit, we saw a lot of fixation on these issues and really almost no mention of anything else in the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, as Nick rightly mentioned, certainly no mention of climate change, but no mention of Southeast Asia, no mention of the South China Sea, uh, no mention of a lot of issues that we would normally associate with U.S. regional leadership in Asia, and indeed kind of a laser focus on this narrow set of issues. Um, and there was something of a sense amongst those of us who watched these issues closely that perhaps the administration was hoping to make some kind of short-term tactical trade with the Chinese president uh, over time in an effort to gain traction on North Korea and reduce the trade deficit, but perhaps ceding <clears throat> space over issues that the United States has traditionally been very involved in and indeed has great stakes in. So uh, although the summit last week really did not produce much by way of material outcomes at all, of course it was largely overshadowed by the uh, operations in Syria, I would urge the administration to step back and to really see the whole chessboard when it comes to approaching this relationship in the future. A short-term tactical approach to China uh, will almost necessarily fail when it comes to U.S. foreign policy interests for several reasons. The first is that Asia is incredibly dynamic and issues involve very quickly. 
So any short-term deal that looks good right now may not look good three months from now. If we get the Chinese to make certain concessions when it comes to North Korea, and North Korea then goes ahead and tests the sixth nuclear weapon or advances its missile technology, that deal will be overtaken. If the United States sees its interest in a key area that it really cares about, like Southeast Asia or the South China Sea, we can be sure that it will be hard to recover that ground. And I think perhaps most importantly, the appearance that the United States is getting ready to deal with another major power in the region without consulting allies or partners would be a grievous mistake because indeed, as Ambassador Oshis mentioned, allies and partners are essential to the region. They are the greatest asset that we have. Uh, so I would really urge the administration when it comes to thinking about this incredibly important relationship, not to make short-term trades because those will only result in an attenuated regional position going forward. Mira, um, a quick follow-up question. I'm consulting the Oracle of the United States Twitter. <laughs> and Donald Trump tweeted twice today at the Chinese. Yeah. I want to read these to everyone and ask you the question, is this an effective way? Maybe it is an effective way to deal with China. The first tweet said, I explained to the president of China that a trade deal with the US will be far better for them if they solve the North Korea problem. And an hour later, he tweeted, hour, hour later, he tweeted, North Korea is looking for trouble. If China decides to help, that would be great. If not, we will solve the problem without them. Signed, USA. If you're Xi Jinping, and you've just had 24 hours with President Trump at Mar-a-Lago, they got to know each other, hopefully they established some trust and knowledge of each other. What do you make of this new American way of broadcasting kind of challenges in your face to this very formal um, Chinese leader in a formal Chinese system? Does it work or does it not work? You know, I think there are two sides to the coin, uh, to be sure. Our colleagues in China have made clear that they do not think this is an appropriate way to conduct diplomacy. There have been... The Chinese government. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there, there have been several editorials in, in state-run newspapers uh, basically calling on the president to stop his diplomacy via tweet, um, calling it unbecoming and, and any number of other things. Um, and I think it, it can pose problems for China, certainly for China's leaders, because it uh, calls up questions of credibility. It, it makes it seem as though uh, the Chinese leadership is sort of being bullied in public. Uh, so if you're Xi Jinping and you are thinking about providing additional assistance on North Korea, having uh, it viewed publicly that the U.S. president is sort of bludgeoning you into doing so via Twitter, as opposed to having a conversation behind closed doors about the interests and stakes involved, I think uh, is quite problematic and could in fact potentially reduce your, uh, your willingness to help over time. Uh, but I also think it can just be uh, sh straight up disarming, uh, which is to say that certainly there were conversations had behind closed doors last week at Mar-a-Lago where North Korea was discussed, where trade is discussed. And all of a sudden these two issues, which almost certainly uh, were not framed as exclusively a trade against one another. That is to say, trade deal in exchange for Very health. transactional. Exactly, v yeah. very transactional. Are, are all of a sudden being traded against each other in public. And, and I think that could certainly be very disorienting. Right. John, help us make sense of this. You were right with the Secretary of State. You were his top, a top advisor. Um, Steve Bosworth, the late Ambassador Bosworth, was here at Harvard a couple of years ago and was <coughs> teaching with us. And, he came into my class, John, and he posed the question that I posed to you, but here's how he framed it. He said, for, for this generation of Americans and Chinese, we're going to be each other's <coughs> most important partner, but we're a most important competitor. He said, to balance those two, he said, will be the toughest thing, challenge, 
the United States has ever faced. And I stopped him there. I said, you mean tougher than the Civil War and tougher than World War II? He said, the toughest challenge we've ever faced. And I have huge respect for Ambassador Bosworth. Is that how you and Secretary Kerry saw that you were balancing these two halves of a relationship? Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Nick, and thanks, everybody, for, for having me here. I would say that, that uh, Ambassador Bosworth's framing is uh, an exact, almost, encapsulation of the way the Obama administration looked at the U.S.-China relationship. There was this mantra. There are lots of mantras in uh, China uh, diplomacy, but the one that we kept coming back to uh, was managing differences and then looking for opportunities, essentially, to, to cooperate, to advance our interests. And, and that speaks to this balance uh, that you're describing. And I think on that score and on those terms, uh, the management of this relationship over the eight years uh, of the Obama administration, I'm not the most uh, unbiased uh, observer of this, I think uh, was, a, was a success uh, in the following ways. You know, in terms of managing uh, differences, it is clear that there were many. Some of them I think we were able to, to narrow uh, you know, on, on issues like uh, cyber, where we actually came to an understanding on some of the criminal activity that we believe was taking place uh, through the, the People's Liberation uh, Army, and we, we handled that uh, quietly and through diplomacy, and I think we're able to make some progress. On some other areas, we were not able to uh, narrow the differences, but none of these escalated to the point of really doing uh, damage to, to the relationship and to other areas where we were looking to make uh, progress. And then neither of the two major sort of security challenges that we face with regard to the Chinese, uh, the DPRK and the South China Sea, and I'm sure we'll talk more about both of those, neither of those came to a head and, and led to uh, a degree of escalation that I think made people nervous. On the... Uh, side of the ledger that involves uh, looking for areas to cooperate and actually pursue interests. Here, I think we really did uh, make extraordinary progress in, in a few key areas. Uh, first, and, and actually really two that are very close to the work uh, that Secretary Kerry uh, did and that I was uh, lucky to be involved in at the State Department were uh, the Iran nuclear deal, where China was one of the uh, central countries uh, in the room for those negotiations. They were not a leading voice in the sense of having sort of strong views one way or another on how this uh, came down, but they were essential to the solution, and in fact were very directly involved in some of the technical uh, solutions that were required uh, to, to actually help Iran deal with a particular piece of its nuclear program, the Iraq uh, nuclear reactor, which the Chinese had been involved in helping to design uh, way back when. So they were, they were central to that. Uh, and then on, on Paris and climate, I mean, that was really a sort of game-changing uh, breakthrough, and, and Secretary Kerry likes to tell this story, and, and I was there to see it, where at the beginning of his uh, tenure in the State Department, we called in our climate team and our Asian team and said, uh, right before the Secretary's first visit to Beijing, I'd like to put on the table the idea of us working with the Chinese, not across the table from the Chinese shouting at each other where they represent the developing world and us uh, on the other side, but actually work with the Chinese to see what might be possible. Joint venture. A joint venture, 50-50, right. Um, and the reaction, even internally, from our team was, that's a really nice idea, Senator. You're now a, you know, the Secretary of State, and, uh, and this is for real. And, and you know, I don't think that's going to fly, even from people that had really worked on these issues for a long time. But they're uh, obviously willing to, to try to execute anything the Secretary of State pursues. And it took a lot of time and a lot of effort and was not an immediate success uh, right away. But the first time the Secretary raised this with Xi Jinping, he reacted positively to it and told his team, let's explore what's uh, possible. Two or three years later, we end up uh, with the, the Paris Agreement. And it really showed uh, what was possible and put China on the opposite side of history from where they'd been on this big central issue. So, so on this ledger, on this balance, I think uh, that's the right way to think about the relationship and, and certainly the way we tried to manage it. Good. Um, Ted, um, Vietnam's in the title of this panel. It's obviously central to everything you've been doing since 2014 as ambassador. 
are we, um, I think for people who remember the war, it's extraordinary to see the development of this friendship mm -hmm. and relationship. And President Obama visited when you, last spring, when mm -hmm. you were there as ambassador. Are we becoming a security partner or a strategic partner of sorts with Vietnam? And why is that happening? And how do you, what is your aim here as ambassador? So the title of our partnership is Comprehensive Partnership. Um, but I, in my view, that's a title. It, the substance is strategic. Yeah. And it's a you know, country with a 3,000-kilometer coastline on the South China Sea. It's a country with a long history of standing up to its northern neighbor at difficult times. You walk the streets of Hanoi or any other Vietnamese city, the, the streets are named Ngo Quyen or Li Tai To or Hai uh, Ba Chung. And those are all people who fought the Chinese. And with the exception of Ho Chi Minh and General Zap, every national hero is somebody who stood up to or fought the Chinese. So um, in dealing with a rising China, uh, I'll come back to this idea that having, having a partner like Vietnam is a, is a good thing. Uh, and it's not a zero-sum game. The, the Vietnamese have a good relationship with China. It involves elements of, uh, of uh, both uh, some conflict, but a lot of collaboration. Uh, and they are, but they're looking for powerful partnerships outside of the immediate region. Look, they want to be very, have a strong relationship with all of the nations of ASEAN. And they want ASEAN to kind of stick together on the big challenges. But they also find it very useful to have a good relationship with us and vice versa. So I would say that we're surging. The relationship is stronger than it has ever been. We had, in addition to President Obama visiting last year, in the last two years, the number one and the number two from the Communist Party have visited the United States. And now we have, a, we have new governments in, in both countries. But the Vietnamese are very pragmatic. And they are looking at ways to work with the new administration, extending their hand to the new administration, and very importantly, signing deals, signing business deals. Big deals have been signed even since November 8th. And I think this is a, a, a practical, pragmatic, and powerful partner. partner. Uh, and then I would note one other thing, and this surprises people, especially people who are focused on the past. When, when you poll Vietnamese, whether it's north, south, young, or old, 92% consider the United States their country's best friend. 92%. So we have a really strong brand in Vietnam. And uh, there's a great desire, especially on the part of young people, to tighten that relationship. And when young Vietnamese look around and think about how they want their country to integrate further with the world, they're not thinking, oh, we want to emulate our neighbor to the north. We want a little more repression. No, the, the, the tendency is, how can we, we look to the United States with hope. How can we uh, gain advantages from our relationship with the United States? What can we learn from the United States? So young people are pouring into the U.S. to study, and they're looking for opportunities to do business with Americans. They're looking to attract more American tourists to tighten the relationship across the board. So it actually makes it a very satisfying time to be there as a diplomat. So I, um, I won't use the C word, contain. I'll use the M word, manage. <laughs> would it be accurate to say that the development of the U.S. 
Vietnam defense relationship is pretty much like the U.S.-India relationship that you and I worked on mm -hmm. together. That we both want to live peacefully with China, mm -hmm. trade with China, but nobody wants to see China become the dominant strategic power in Asia. Is that fueling some of the defense cooperation between Vietnam and the United States? I mean, the technical line is that we're developing it for its intrinsic importance. But I don't think it's surprised to people that the fact that China's been belligerent in the South China Sea has led the Vietnamese to seek a stronger relationship with us. In fact, you can kind of pinpoint it. May 2014, Chinese moved a huge oil rig into Vietnam's uh, exclusive economic zone. And that really riled up not only the people of Vietnam, but caused the Politburo, the leadership, great concern. And so I think a, a kind of divided leadership about how, whether to grow closer to the United States or whether to uh, stick with a traditional brotherly relationship with the Chinese, that debate kind of broke in our direction after May 2014. So in December 2014, when the Philippines filed a case with the International Tribunal on the South China Sea and the cow's tongue or the nine-dash line, the Vietnamese immediately uh, acknowledged that tribunal's jurisdiction. That was a hard decision for some leaders in Vietnam, very tough decision. But I think after they made that decision, there was no turning back. And I, we keep saying uh, there's no looking back in Vietnam. Those who have traveled to Vietnam, you've seen what the traffic is like. You've seen what the motorcycles are like. Vietnamese drivers don't look to the left, they don't look to the right, and they really don't look behind. They look ahead. And I think that's, that is very characteristic of Vietnamese leaders and people as well, is you look ahead. And when they look ahead, they see a big challenge to the north, probably is the way the Mexicans often feel when they look to their neighbor to the north. And they see a friendly, fairly benign relation, uh, nation that's far away and that wants to expand ties to, to them and they're ready to go for it. So, uh, Mira, Ted's talked about the South China Sea. You're an expert on that issue, and the question I have for you is, how should the U.S. protect its interests when we're obviously not a littoral state? We're not an active participant among the six claimants to the Spratleys and Paracels, and yet we are concerned strategically with freedom of navigation, and we don't want to see disputes in Asia, territorial disputes, and where the stronger power always wins. We want to see the rights of everybody respected. How should President Trump proceed, based on what you're the expert here, what President Obama and President George <coughs> W. Bush had done in the past? Thanks, Nick. I think the, the way that you frame the question is actually really helpful, because uh, South China Sea policy is, is no easy feat, and I think uh, John and Ambassador Oshis would, would certainly attest to that based on their experience. But when approaching it, I think it is essential to see the South China Sea as a two-level game. On one level, we have the regional, territorial, and maritime disputes um, that include the claimants uh, in Southeast Asia. And it is absolutely the case that the United States does not take a position and does not have an inherent stake in the sovereignty of any one given feature. However, there is a second level to this game uh, that has been evolving very rapidly in the last several years, and that is uh, the South China Sea as an arena or crucible of strategic competition in Asia, and indeed of U.S.-China competition in Asia. Um, this level of the game has a lot to do with who is going to set the rules of the road and whether or not they're going to be followed. Uh, and we cannot approach the South China Sea without acknowledging both of those levels and trying to manage them both at the same time. 
when it comes to crafting South China Sea policy in this administration, uh, I would urge this new administration to acknowledge the fact that the situation on the ground, indeed the actual geography of the South China Sea, has evolved tremendously in just the last few years. We have seven uh, almost now military bases in the Spratly Islands that were not there before and frankly would have been very difficult for any administration to contend with. Um, and that I think really requires a thorough policy review to think about how U.S. interests have evolved since its declaratory policy on the South China Sea was first crafted back in 1995. I think the Trump administration, like any administration, needs to do a thorough policy review to identify strategic objectives, U.S. interests, and the foreign policy tools that can help to bring those about in the South China Sea. I think that review is likely to conclude with the unfortunate uh, realization that China's artificial islands in the South China Sea are not going anywhere, uh, that in a short period of time it has succeeded in using its newfound military power and some very innovative techniques in creating new military bases where they did not exist before. Uh, and rather than you know, hoping to uh, stop China from militarizing its bases, which frankly it is already very much in the process of doing, the key question is how does the United States exercise leadership in the region in such a way that it is able to undermine the strategic objectives of China's use of these bases? We could see, for, for instance, two years from now, China being able to rotate fighter jets through these islands, being able to station major surface combatants at these islands that have sophisticated port facilities, and potentially being able to use these positions to put a lot of pressure on other regional states to try to get their way, potentially to seize more territory or at least just to project power. So I think a key question to the administration is how do you prevent that strategic outcome, even if those capabilities do end up on the island? And that circles back to why it's important to recognize that this is a two-level game. Because there is nothing that the United States can do unilaterally that will be able to avert that outcome. This is absolutely a regional game when it comes to pushing back against China's strategic objectives of having control over this area of the South China Sea. And that will take copious engagement through ASEAN, which can be completely unglamorous and unfulfilling. That will take long-dated initiatives like security assistance and maritime domain awareness projects that will take encouraging other regional allies like Japan and Australia and South Korea to step up and help other countries in Southeast Asia engage in capacity building efforts so that they're better, effort, better able to coordinate amongst themselves. But there is almost nothing the United States can do by itself to avert uh, the worst possible strategic outcome from China's increased assertiveness in the South China Sea. I assume this issue was raised by the United States at the Mar-a-Lago meeting. Do we, do, we, do we know what the nature of that discussion was, or is it uh, opaque? From the readouts I've seen, it's both opaque and got a passing mention. <laughs> it, there was sort or of a, a restatement of interests and not much more. It did not look like a live issue. Well, box checking. Exactly. So John, uh, I have one question for John, then we're going to turn it over to you for questions. John, the question for you kind of comes out of this discussion. Yeah. There was a very clear Obama, Clinton, Kerry, the two Secretary of State and President Biden policy that Asia and the Pacific was pivotal, vital region of the United States. We're going to dedicate ourselves to expanding our economic, military, political presence. What's the Trump vision? Do we know yet? How do you read it as a former journalist? Yeah. Easy one. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so a, a, few, a few things on this. One is I've heard over the last few weeks a number of people try to bring uh, strategic uh, coherence to various aspects of the Trump uh, administration's foreign policy. I'm 
uh, as you mentioned, at the Institute of Politics, leading a weekly study group on exactly uh, this question, trying to discern whether or not there is a, a Trump doctrine. And one of the things I have found is that people who uh, attempt to do this often sound far more uh, theoretically and strategically coherent than the administration does when it's talking <laughs> about its own uh, approach, which is just uh, a, a, a fact of uh, the, the way they communicate, un unfortunately. But I'll do the best I can. I think it's a bit unfair, uh, frankly, to expect uh, a discernible strategy at this point in an administration. We're not even 100 days in. You know, we now know the Obama administration for the rebalance to Asia, but it's important to remember that that uh, policy was not really articulated until 2011. Uh, so, so you know, two years into the uh, Obama administration, it was laid out in a foreign affairs article by Secretary Clinton, and then President Obama gave a speech, I think, at the Australian uh, Parliament, and uh, and kind of laid this out uh, to the world. So we need to give them some time, and I will, in my remarks, try to be as scrupulously fair as possible to what they're trying to do. So what do we know about what they're uh, doing? I think we know a couple of things about their approach to Asia. One is that they care deeply about wins for the American economy. The president has articulated that in, in every possible way uh, that one can, including uh, through Twitter this morning. Uh, they are rightly, uh, I think we would all agree, concerned about the security threat posed uh, by the DPRK. And I actually, again, will uh, credit President Obama uh, for this. It was one of the very few issues, substantive issues, that he really emphasized uh, to President Trump uh, on his way out the door as one that could really uh, explode, no pun intended, and come to dominate uh, the security landscape during uh, the Trump administration. And, and by all accounts, uh, President Trump took that to heart and has taken that uh, seriously. The, the most sort of uh, charitable view I have, I think, of, of their approach uh, beyond that is that they seem to be following, to a very large extent, uh, the playbook that the previous administration uh, laid out. They have started with an approach that focuses uh, very much on, on alliances and on allies. Uh, both uh, General Mattis, now Secretary Mattis, and Secretary Tillerson made very early trips where they touched all the right bases in uh, the capitals of our alliance partners uh, in Asia. Um, you know, uh, uh, President Trump has, has made the right phone calls, sent the right signals. I think that is an important uh, starting point. Second, they have placed an appropriate degree of emphasis on the U.S.-China relationship as the most consequential relationship, not just in uh, the region, but uh, as we discussed uh, previously in the world. I think this early uh, Mar-a-Lago summit, even as it was, uh, some aspects of it were, uh, were mocked, was actually not that dissimilar to uh, what President Obama did with uh, President Xi Jinping in, in Sunnylands. So, uh, you know, an off-campus, slightly more informal uh, setting to try to kind of uh, break the ice. Far be it for us to, to criticize an approach uh, like that. And they are now starting, I think, to expand their focus even uh, to Southeast Asia, which is such a, a central uh, aspect of our approach for all the reasons uh, that were uh, previously mentioned. Um, Vice President Pence is going to be stopping uh, through the region at the end of this month, including, uh, I believe, in Indonesia, which I think yes. is uh, quite an important uh, signal. Secretariat. Yeah, exactly, about the commitment uh, to the region. So all these things are to the good. You know, on India, it's not really clear. We, we certainly placed a lot of time and energy in building the relationship uh, with Modi uh, upon his uh, uh, sentency to the, the prime ministership. Haven't seen uh, a lot of comment on, on India, but, you know, stay tuned. It's, it's still early. The problem, uh, you know, on the other side of the ledger is that their public pronouncements, public statements have not exactly engendered a degree of clarity and comfort and uh, reassurance. So what they're doing, you know, in a lot of these areas may well be fine. What they're saying, uh, frankly, is a, is a bit all over the map. Now, in fairness to them, you, know, you mentioned these tweets uh, this morning. The Chinese have their own version of this, which is uh, not tweets from the leader's personal account, but, you know, nasty comments and statements made through state-run media in the wake of 
just about every visit we ever made uh, to Beijing, and in the wake of this Mar-a-Lago summit where the president, you know, for uh, launching those strikes against Syria, was it was said that he was a weakened leader who was lashing out to try to... And you know that this sort of commentary is not... Uh, spontaneously generated from a free and vibrant press. This is a leadership uh, view being heard, and I think to some extent there's a, a, an element of, of President Trump probably responding to some of the stuff that he knows was, was said about him. So in fairness to him, maybe that one he gets a, a bit of a pass, but on other things they've been all over the place. They've been nasty to, uh, uh, to Abe of Japan, then they in, invite him for this um, you know, beautiful uh, a meeting in Mar-a-Lago that was uh, very over-the-top and opulent on the Chinese uh, they've been a bit all over the place. Similarly, running these plays uh, that were described uh, um, where it almost seems like they're trying to per- pursue a transaction that the Chinese will never uh, accept. Uh, you know, and they started with the one China policy where uh, they, they sort of dangled that as an inducement to a better uh, trade arrangement at the beginning before uh, abandoning uh, that approach. So, so there's a real communications challenge with regard to Asia that hopefully they will be able to clean up. And then the biggest problem of all is the DPRK they seem to be adopting a rational approach to this problem. They did a policy review through the National Security Council, not through this uh, special initiatives uh, group. It was handled by professionals. I, my understanding is that it did not conclude that there are magical uh, solutions uh, available that we uh, and others have not been able to see, um, but constantly signaling again through the press that we can either do this with China or without, when I think everybody else objectively looking at this problem doesn't exactly know what they're talking about. Is it creates the possibility of miscalculation that, that could be dangerous. So, thank you very much, and thanks to the panel, to Mira and John and Ambassador Osius. Your questions, comments. The only thing that I would ask is if you'd identify yourself by name and what you're doing here uh, at the Kennedy School. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Nam Pham. I was student here 35 years ago. Uh, now Welcome I will state a assistant secretary for international trade. Uh, I have a question for all the panelists. Uh, suppose that uh, President Trump uh, came to you and said, John, Mira, Ted, I understand that China relationship is very important. But China has been a bad, bad bully in South China Sea and everything else. Can you tell me a few things that I can do immediately or the next few months? So it could, uh, so I could uh, protect and advance U.S. interests in Asia to enhance our uh, moral standing over there, as well to improve the human rights situation in Tibet, in China, and Vietnam. What are the few concrete things that I can do right now? What a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Ambassador Osha, you should lead. Few concrete things to do right now. Uh, Well, I mean, I think it is very concrete to solidify relationships with allies. I think it's very concrete to keep building uh, our, our partnerships with uh, nations in the region, particularly when it comes to South China Sea, particularly in Southeast Asia. Um, I agree with uh, Mira's analysis of the situation in the South China Sea. What we've been doing has been syncing up diplomatically with ASEAN nations. So before every summit, we all, get, uh, we all get together, at least we certainly get together with Vietnam, but also with other ASEAN nations to, to uh, make sure that our, our diplomatic approach is, is uh, consistent. Uh, we compare legal strategies, and that really is, I would say, an addendum to a diplomatic strategy. And then we do what, uh, what Mira also mentioned, which is that we, we work to build the capacity of our partners. And so whether it's in maritime domain awareness, 
or in making sure they have ships that are big enough that they won't be sunk uh, by water cannons, or making sure that they have uh, not only a sense of what's happening in the South China Sea, but ability to react to events in the South China Sea. Um, I think those are concrete things that we can do. Looking, again, very concretely, uh, those islands, I agree, are not going anywhere. But there's an island that hasn't yet been built on Scarborough Reef. And so we have to watch that space very closely. And we have to do that in conjunction with Filipinos, who you know, I think Luzon is a few miles away from Scarborough Reef. But the Vietnamese are very concerned about what might happen there, because that would create, uh, I wouldn't say it's a virtuous triangle, a triangle uh, that would enable the Chinese to do quite a lot and disrupt, uh, disrupt traffic if it chose to do so. And that's where our vital interests are at stake. We've, for 240 years, the United States has stood for freedom of navigation in the sea lanes. It is a vital interest. And then since there have been planes, we've stood for freedom of overflight. And, and we don't get too attached to any, any rock or any feature, but we do care about how these issues are resolved, and we care very much about an area where, where uh, half the world's seaborne, seaborne cargo passes through every year. So working with our, our, uh, our partners and with our allies to, to defuse the South China Sea, to make it expensive to violate international law, to make it expensive uh, to, to misbehave and act like a bully in the South China Sea is an important thing we can do. I'm going to leave Tibet uh, to, to my colleagues <laughs> on the panel. Well, I'm not going to touch Tibet either, but <laughs> I, I will put a point on uh, a couple of things that the ambassador just said. I do think the question of Scarborough Shoal in the South China Sea is absolutely essential. This is a feature that China sees from the Philippines back in 2012, has not yet built on. Uh, but has nominally controlled since then uh, and is a point of major contention between the Philippines and China. And because the United States has a, a mutual defense treaty with the Philippines, it is the most obvious place where the United States could potentially get drawn into a major crisis or a conflict in the South China Sea. Uh, so looking backwards at the island building that has already taken place and knowing that China has an interest in Scarborough Shoal, knowing as we do that there was serious thought put into building on Scarborough Shoal this time last year and that those efforts were averted through tough private diplomacy, I do think it's incumbent upon this administration to think very seriously about what they're going to do to avert that outcome and to figure out how to work with this Philippines government to do so. Uh, Duterte, the president of the Philippines, is no small challenge, um, in particular because he has continued to carry out an extrajudicial killing campaign, uh, which makes it very difficult to uh, work with him in a, in a high-profile way. However, uh, although he threatened some of the most essential trappings of the U.S.-Philippines alliance over the course of the last year, he largely has not met word with D. Uh, so that partnership does remain intact, and I think it is essential that the Trump administration figure out what form cooperation with the Philippines is going to take, since so much U.S.-South China Sea policy has traditionally run through the Philippines. The final suggestion that I would make is actually not one in the security space at all, but rather that the Trump administration find a way to articulate an economic agenda for Asia. <coughs> the United States took a huge blow to its credibility uh, beginning mid-year last year when it became apparent that the TPP probably would not pass. Uh, because both presidential candidates were opposed to it. And obviously a point was put on that when President Trump decided to withdraw from it in a very demonstrable way in just his first few days in office. 
TPP has symbolic value to countries who were not even negotiating partners to the agreement because it is a symbol of the United States' continued economic commitment to the region. Um, it is obviously you know, a, a loss. This, this trade deal is not coming back under this administration, but there are ways that it could signal that it intends to remain engaged in Asia economically, and certainly when it comes to partners like Vietnam, I think that's an absolutely essential uh, component of our reassurance to the region. Just very quickly, I agree with everything my colleague said, particularly the point about uh, the need for an economic approach to replace the just enormous uh, leadership vacuum that we left and that is being filled increasingly by China in the wake of uh, withdrawal from uh, TPP. And this may just be another way of saying uh, what uh, the point that Ted made at, at the beginning in response to your question, but I think what the administration needs is a regional approach as opposed to a series of bilateral approaches to countries uh, in the region. I think they've done actually a fairly good job at explaining what matters to them in each of the individual relationships. But one of the things that we prioritized, and I think uh, with some uh, positive effect, was uh, not just our relationships with each of these countries, but their relationships uh, with each other. Uh, you saw this in our attempts to uh, bring the Japanese and uh, South Koreans uh, closer together after years and years of tension uh, you know, rooted in, in history and some um, contemporary phenomena as well, and actually sitting down trilaterally with these two countries to try to kind of force the issue. Uh, you see it in our work uh, with ASEAN, uh, quite certainly. And, and what I hear is that uh, Secretary Tillerson may, in the near term, be engaging uh, with the ASEAN uh, counterparts, his foreign minister uh, counterparts, which I think would be a very positive sign. So thinking of the region uh, more holistically and actually uh, uh, putting some, some effort into that, I think, is important. One way in which they're going to have, uh, I guess you could call it an advantage, over the approach uh, that we took in dealing with some of these countries, although I do not believe, uh, I think other, my colleagues would probably agree, uh, it's uh, a positive thing, is that they are not going to be pushing as hard on things like human rights. They have signaled that uh, not just in uh, East Asia, but they have signaled that in, in the Middle East and in other uh, areas as well. That will be one fewer uh, irritant, uh, one less irritant in the, in the U.S. relationship with China. It will also make things uh, fundamentally easier with Duterte uh, and the Philippines, but not an approach uh, that I would condone or recommend. Thank you. Yes, sir. Name. My name is Du Huynh. I'm from uh, Vietnam and a visiting scholar here. I know Ted for a while. I have a question for you. Uh, if I think 16 years ago, when President Peterson came to, I think, to visit, to talk with a Vietnam leader, and eight years ago when uh, um, um, uh, um, Ambassador Michael came to talk with, I think, Vietnamese leader, I think we know quite know well that I think what would happen in the future, but right now, I think I agree with you that in talking with, uh, I think enhancing the bilateral relationship is important. But we don't know what's going on in the president's mind. We don't know what's going on tomorrow. So what, how you convince Vietnamese leader to trust you that I think your, that your, the, the policy would continue instead of we don't know. Nick Church uh, said that I think just a few days ago when President Trump met with the Chinese president. And then just yesterday, today, he signed something like that. So how, how could you do that to make church for Vietnamese leader or other leader in the other leader in other country to church diplomats? I think about, I think, we should continue the relationship. Uh, I mean, the way I've approached it is I don't promise anything I can't deliver. So from the moment that we knew the results of the election, uh, I haven't tried to predict what policies would emerge, and I focused on what our interests are. I think 
our interests, not only in Vietnam but in Asia writ large, are very fundamental. It's the future of, of the United States. And we are an Asian power. We're, we're going to continue to be an Asian power. We're going to continue to have economic interests uh, in the region. We're going to have to pursue, at some point, a positive trade agenda as well. We're going to ha I don't know what form it will take, but there has to be an economic architecture to, that tracks in some way with, with our security interests. Uh, so I've focused again and, and again on interests. And when it comes to our, our interests in Vietnam, they haven't changed. And so I, I have found that it has not been difficult to continue uh, to have a very strong dialogue with Vietnam's leadership about the future of the relationship because they know I'm not going to promise anything that I, I can't deliver on. Uh, I was called in, I think it was the day before I left to come here, uh, by the president, uh, uh, President Tran Dai Quang, in order to make sure that my hand was strengthened when I headed to Washington. He had a few things that he wanted me to raise in Washington, and I was able to do so with a, a very clear indication of what Vietnamese thinking was. Um, and I think they have, you know, they've continued to uh, use an ambassador whom they trust to communicate with the new administration. And I have done everything I could to indicate to the, the leadership how best I think they can start out their new relationship with the new administration. And as a result, I think it's quite possible that the first top-level visit to, uh, to Washington by a Southeast Asian, Asian leader may be from Vietnam. Uh, it's possible to, that in this year that Vietnam is hosting APEC, that there may be a visit by the U.S. president in the first year of his term. And that doesn't very often happen in Vietnam. Uh, there, the fact that Vietnam is hosting APEC this year, I feel, is a godsend. It's uh, because there will be an enormous number of brand new administration officials going to Vietnam for all, not just the summit in November, but all the meetings that lead up to the summit. You get the ministers responsible for trade who will go in May. And if Lighthizer is confirmed by then, I expect he'll go. We have the finance ministers. Uh, we'll have the secretaries, uh, you know, secretaries of state, uh, uh, ministers for foreign affairs who will all go. So Vietnam has many opportunities right in the first year of the new administration to, to help set the agenda. And Vietnamese are not being passive about it at all. They're, they're very proactive in reaching out to the new administration. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't every single month between now and the APEC summit, a visit by a vice foreign minister. And those are very effective visits, visits by the vice defense minister, and I hope at some point the minister of defense. All of that exchange is happening because we have so many shared interests. When, if a review is being conducted on South China Sea, it's very useful to talk to Vietnam early on because the Vietnamese are not shy about their views when it comes to dealing with the South China Sea. If you're talking about uh, what kind of uh, an economic architecture is going to work, very useful to talk to uh, Vietnam, who's been negotiating with us for the last six years and, and uh, has a sense of what's possible and what's not. So I think there are enormous opportunities this year to, to keep this relationship surging forward. Thank you, Ambassador. Yes, please. <clears throat> 
Thank you. Um, my name is Amanda Watson. I'm an MPP student here. Um, I have a question for Ambassador Oshos just to pick up on something you just said about um, focusing on U.S. interests in the relationship with Vietnam. Um, do you think that, I mean, are human rights one of the U.S.'s interests in Vietnam? Um, and if so, do we have any sort of leverage left to us in that relationship, given that kind of under the previous administration, the TPP was seen as this opportunity to kind of push for labor rights specifically, but improvements in human rights overall. Um, there were a few kind of high-profile political prisoners released during the time, but then now it seems like there's been more of a crackdown on civil society in the last you know, year or so. Um, so do you think the U.S. has any leverage left, and is that an interest? Absolutely. And I spent a lot of time on the Hill uh, this past week, and there's no lessening of interest uh, with regard to human rights on the Hill. And I've uh, met with senior people in the administration, and I see no lessening of interest in human rights uh, from the people I spoke with about the relationship. So uh, there's, you know, the various elements. When, it, when you talk about human rights, there are various elements of it. There are some people who are very focused on the religious freedom question, uh, including very highly placed senators and members of Congress who care a lot about that issue, and then very highly placed members of the, of the new administration. And that's a, a, uh, an area where there's a pretty good story to tell. Uh, when I was first in Vietnam over 20 years ago, I visited a, a monastery in the Central Highlands, and there were three old monks, all in their, in their late 70s, and they were complaining that they couldn't get any uh, new seminarians to come in, and they didn't have any students, and it was an empty, uh, drafty place. I went back as ambassador, and there were old monks and middle-aged young monks and young monks, and there were 150 ethnic minority kids running around. It was a very dynamic place now, and the Catholic Church has just opened an institute of higher education. Uh, the Catholic Church is very involved in uh, clinics and in elementary schools, and kindergartens, there's been a sea change in the last 20 years. And the Vietnamese just passed a law, the Law on Religion and Belief, uh, which is, is pretty good. It creates a lot more space for religious institutions. Freedom of expression is another piece of, of what we call human rights. Uh, and the big difference, again, from when I was there 20 years ago, is that there's the internet. 48 million Vietnamese are on the internet. For, fifth, uh, 50 some million are on the internet, 48 million are on Facebook. And they're very, very, very active, and people say whatever they want on Facebook. It's, it, that's a pretty sharp contrast to the neighbor to the north. Now, people are still arrested for when they cross certain lines, uh, especially very prominent bloggers. And we go in and pound on the table, and sometimes not much happens. So, what we've tried to do is, as best we can, approach this as Vietnam laid out its aspirations in a new constitution in 2013. Systematically, it's trying to sync up its laws with its new constitution. We can be helpful. Uh, it's trying to sync up its laws with the international commitments it's made. We can be helpful. We can be helpful because we're interested in Vietnam's success. And you can't really succeed as a modern nation. You can't move up the value chain if you don't encourage innovation. If your people don't have a way to communicate with other people who are in the world who are thinking interesting thoughts. And, and we also have been encouraging uh, improvements in the higher education system, uh, which badly needs 
to be upgraded if Vietnam is to achieve its aspirations. So I think there are ways we can engage on human rights uh, that show that we are, we are rooting for Vietnam to succeed. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Chris Mirasola. Chris is a student at Harvard Law School and Harvard Kennedy School. He's an expert in the South China Sea. I know that for a fact. I wouldn't go that far, but thank you. Um, um, I'm, I'm curious to kind of circle back to a point that was made earlier about ASEAN. Um, I think since Duterte kind of became president, we saw it kind of shift in the balance of power within ASEAN. Um, recent events might kind of uh, suggest that there might be a change in that. And I'm curious to hear um, what you all think of the future of ASEAN as a multilateral organization um, for the region. Um, in like the near to medium term, how might this, how might the U.S. kind of leverage this organization uh, to advance our interests? Um, my view is that ASEAN's been getting better and better, and has they also and, and also has been becoming more pragmatic. So it used to be the ASEAN way is you had to abs- have absolute consensus on everything, and now ASEAN is exploring ways that on very tough issues you can have nine members who agree and one who doesn't. Uh, And you know which one I'm talking about. And it's not Vietnam. Uh, No, and the Vietnamese have become the... Vietnamese don't like it when I say this, because when I use the word leadership, they say, I don't know, we have proactive foreign policy, but it is leadership. Vietnam, behind the scenes, is, is playing a very strong leadership role within ASEAN, particularly on strategic issues, maybe a little less on economic issues, but definitely on strategic issues. And it's been welcomed. Uh, Indonesia is pretty internally focused at the moment. (coughs) Thailand is very internally focused at the moment. Malaysia is very internally focused at the moment. And the Philippines we've we've heard about. And Singapore is small. Uh, And Singaporeans are certainly strategic in the way they think, but so are the Vietnamese. Very strategic and very proactive. They, in fact, I would, you know, there's a long, running dialogue between uh, Duterte and the leaders of uh, Vietnam about how best to deal with the Chinese. And the Vietnamese speak from experience because they've been successful in their pushing back against the Chinese at times. And they like to remind the, the Filipinos that if you don't push, out, push back, things will happen that you won't like and it'll become much harder to push back. So um, I, I, I think... ASEAN is tremendously important, not only to the ASEANs, but to us. Because if we're trying to deal with the uh, rising China, we do it a, a lot better in conjunction with our ASEAN partners. Uh, thank you. My name is Jenny from Center for Na- uh, International Development at Kennedy School. Um, as you point out, that political friendship um, without economic benefits could be unsustainable. And historically, U.S. signs great deals in business with um, bilater- uh, bilateral um, or via multilateral agreements uh, in Vietnam. But um, these years, China is the biggest donor in World Bank funds, and has also just recently set up a 10 times uh, capital as much of the World Bank uh, development banks. And China's presence is significantly embedded from consumables to huge infrastructure projects. Um, and I, I think that China's presence, the strategy in Vietnam as well as in other African countries, is not simply just volume. It's not just volume of investment, but also in strategic um, sectors. Um, for example, um, the, uh, the, the um, China um, state control 
South and Greed uh, Enterprise, the biggest FDI in um, energy sector in Vietnam. And there is virtually no U.S. Um, companies, enterprise actually um, has actually done any significant projects in Vietnam. And if you actually look at other projects like in construction, you see the same patterns. So how would the U.S. deal with these? Um, it's very strategic movements um, in, in terms of economic benefits in Vietnam and in other developing countries. Um, uh, when the U.S. is actually withdrawing from development projects as well as, you know, they start, you know, with, within, with the Trump administration, they start to draw back from um, clean energy, development of clean energies. Well, I would agree with some of what you said, but not all. Um, Exxon just signed a $10 billion deal uh, with Vietnam. AES has uh, major plants and is, and is going beyond coal into solar in Vietnam. Murphy Oil is a key, that's based in Arkansas. They are uh, exploring South China Sea and uh, in uh, Vietnam's part of the South China Sea. GE has major investments in Vietnam. So it's not correct that only the Chinese are invested in the energy sector. Chinese are invested in coal. And what the Vietnamese now are grappling with is if you follow the Chinese blueprint and uh, go from 19 coal-fired plants to 52 by 2030, what will Vietnam look like? Uh, its, its cities are all, already suffering from really serious air pollution and, uh, and health, uh, health impacts of that air pollution. And so, and if it becomes in more and more reliant on Chinese coal, what does that say about Vietnam security? Because that flow can also be cut off. If, you're, if they become completely dependent on coal, I would say that's, that's, uh, that's going to uh, cut into their Vietnam sovereignty. It's going to make it much more difficult for Vietnam to, be, to remain independent. And so Vietnamese are, are, are grappling with these challenges. And, and at the same time, electricity goes up, or electric, needs for electricity go up 12% a year. And they're looking increasingly to other sources, uh, including sources of clean energy, and those are mostly coming from us. So we focus very much in the energy sector, but also in infrastructure when you look at smart cities and healthcare and aviation. The United States is very active when it comes to infrastructure. And some of it is World Bank funded, but most of it is, is just companies investing in Vietnam because they see opportunities. And I find increasingly the Vietnamese turning to us to help them find solutions to fundamental infrastructure problems that they have and not just turning to the Chinese. Thank you. So you get your chance now. Thank you very much. My name is Chung. Uh, I graduated here from the Kerry School. I'm now becoming a, a fellow at the Arts Center. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, Ambassador Ted to be coming here uh, to come here to the Kerry School. Uh, do you know what they call him in Vietnam? The youth Vietnamese call him uh, the gallant big brother. And trust me, not many people to. Uh, and, talk, talk <laughs> out the that. and the second uh, the example. What, Wait, what was it? The what, what was big the brother? What was the the gallant big brother. Gallant. Oh, well, very good. <laughs> Sounds nice. Yeah, Sounds good. good. <laughs> and uh, second example, um, last year uh, there, was, um, there was a conference for the diplomats, internal conference of diplomats in Vietnam, 
And the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of Vietnam attended that, and he named Ambassador Ted of Sus as an exemplar for the Vietnamese diplomats. So, uh, thank you. Are you president of Ted Bank? So, I paid for this. Thanks. <laughs> no, why, why, why I'm, I'm telling you this uh, story? Um, so, think about it. It's about American soft power. He, he really, he really represented American soft power, and, um, and, and that's how the Vietnamese view him um, uh, as American uh, representative in Vietnam. And uh, what I'm really worried is that in the next future, when he leaves, and then the, um, the Trump administration they cut budget for the, um, the Department of State, and how what's what's the future will look like for the American soft power in the region? Um, so I have a question for, for the panel and especially Ambassador Ted. Um, from your point of view, what, what are the main obstacles for the Vietnamese and Vietnam-US relationship? So what do you find most difficult to work with Vietnamese? And what do you think the Vietnamese will find most difficult when working with Americans? Um, and maybe the second question, um, you can answer if you wish to, but uh, do you sense there, sh there could be a possible shift sh 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 of policy from Vietnam in the wake of the new presidency, so in the sense of rebalancing back to China, um, but still try to be neutral? Thank you. Thanks. So maybe I should oh, say yeah, yeah. first, well, well, uh, the first part of the question, if, uh, if that's easier. So on, no on, on your question about uh, soft power, um, you know, and, and, and its relationship to, to, for example, the State Department budget. So I think Vietnam is, in some ways, the classic example of soft power having achieved things that hard power could not. Uh, you know, when you look back over the span of, of history and, and the second half of the uh, 20, 21st century, 20th century. But, uh, but we're in a, a pretty dark place when it comes to soft power in, in the United States uh, right now. The budget... Uh, that is being debated, and it will not be the budget that is uh, finalized by the Congress. The Congress has already said the president's uh, budget is uh, essentially uh, dead on arrival, but would reduce dramatically uh, exactly the types of programs that have been uh, so successful in Vietnam. You will probably have this uh, statistic, Ted, but, but some significant percentage of the Vietnamese leadership has participated in exchange programs uh, with the United States. And here at Harvard with the VELP. Right. More, uh, than, more than half the Politburo. More than half, half the right Vietnamese yeah, uh, right Politburo in, 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 in this one place. And that matters, uh, frankly. It matters uh, in terms of uh, Vietnamese understanding of, of the United States and what we're trying to do. It matters when you're trying to uh, build a relationship for uh, reasons that go beyond soft power to sort of big strategic uh, questions. We will be hurt in our ability to do that uh, because of uh, a diminished commitment to, to exactly those sorts of uh, tools. One of the proposals that came out uh, of the White House and of the Office of Management and the Budget uh, was to cut entirely our Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs at the State Department. Now, again, this will not last. Congress will not uh, stand for this $600 million chunk of uh, the State Department's budget, budget being uh, cut. But doing that uh, does suggest a lack of appreciation for these tools that have been uh, very successful. That's maybe sharper than uh, some of my colleagues will say it, but it's, it's very much, I think, uh, the reality of the situation. And then to answer what's hardest for us, and it's, it's human rights. It's the question I, I, I tried to answer earlier. And again, we, do, we look at these things in a different way, but we found a way to talk to each other about these matters. So the number of political prisoners is going down, and laws are being written that I think make it less likely that those jail cells get filled right away as, uh, as people get out. 
the probably probably if you're Vietnamese, the hardest thing dealing with us is is predictability. Uh, they want to know, especially in the economic realm, that we're going to be a predictable partner. I, I guess that would apply to the security realm as well. But they want to know that we're going to be a predictable partner, and I think we're going to be able to show that. And I and I'm I'm confident after a week in Washington that we will be able to show that we're a predictable partner, both in the security realm and the economic realm. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, please. Hi, my name is Heng, and uh, I'm here with my dad. He used to work in the US Embassy in Hanoi. Uh, we recently moved here um, thanks to the SIV program. And uh, I just had a question. So earlier, the ambassador mentioned that 92% Vietnamese young people feel that feel friendly toward America, but um, I had a friend, we recently did a research uh, in Hanoi Unif Law University. Most of Vietnamese young people feel like China would grow like faster, both economically and military, f faster than the US. And uh, right now, young people f in Vietnam feel like America, with the new administration, would abandon Vietnam, and we should uh, how do I put this? We should like leaning toward China for a better solution uh, in the EC. And how how would you, as an ambassador, like deal with that? And that's not what I'm hearing. And I continue to go to universities and high schools, and I continue to read. I, I have 84,000 Facebook fans, and I read their comments wow. all the time. <laughs> And so I, I, I am not hearing that there's a desire to cozy up to China. I, I'd be very surprised to hear that. The, I, and I didn't quite answer your question because uh, one of the things that happened right after the election is that Nguyen Phu Chom went to Beijing. Now, typically, the general secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam goes to Beijing on a fairly regular basis. And he was received uh, by a lot of members of the Politburo and uh, some, I expect, said to him, watch those Americans, they're not predictable. And that's and not unpredictable is a four-letter word in Asia. Um, so I think there is a, a concern on the part of the leadership that they maintain a stable relationship with China. It is important to have a stable relationship with China. Just as, again, use the parallel for Mexicans, it's important to have a stable relationship with the United States. And that doesn't mean that people are suddenly turning away from the United States. When we have had educational fairs, the, they're packed. We had 60 universities go over, represented in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. Thousands of people showed up in Ho Chi Minh City. Thousands showed up in Hanoi. There has been no decline in the number of visas being requested, no lo loss of interest in studying in, in the United States. We're going to open Fulbright University of Vietnam uh, this year, an American-style university with academic, guaranteed academic freedom and intense interest in that on the part of young people. So I am not hearing that there's been a recalculation of what's in Vietnam's best interest. Can I ask Mira to take that question, that very good question, and expand it into the security realm? I guess I'd be very surprised, given our 72-year commitment to Asia, militarily, if any American administration would reduce our footprint, our, the degree of our commitment, the 
reliability of the United States, but you're the expert. You know, I think it's uh, a complicated question. Uh, upon the, this president's election, there were obviously visceral concerns from our allies in Asia, uh, notably South Korea and Japan, because President Trump had really singled them out on the campaign trail as allies who had not done enough to pay their fair share, allies who were going to face some kind of major troop withdrawal uh, if, they, if they didn't pay up towards their security guarantee. Uh, but the administration's very early. He offered them nuclear weapons, too. So he let's, he, let's he offered, offered them, well, he didn't quite offer them nuclear <laughs> weapons. He expressed a sort of dispassionate stance they should the Japanese build right? their yeah. own. Um, and also dispassionate stance towards the prospect of nuclear war. Yeah. Um, but that, that's neither here nor there. Exactly. Um, since uh, he got into office, I think this president has uh, very clearly uh, understood that he needed to reaffirm our security guarantees in East Asia. And Secretary Manus did a very good job of that uh, in his first uh, trip to the region, making very clear that the United States saw its, uh, its alliances with South Korea and Japan in particular as absolutely essential. Um, so I don't think that uh, U.S. traditional allies in East Asia are, are necessarily fearing that the United States is going to make a massive drawdown in its troop commitment from its bases, or that they are going to sort of get shaken down in this mafioso-like way uh, for part of the bill uh, that they somehow should have been paying all along. But that's very different than saying that U.S. allies are assured of the continuing U.S. presence in Asia. Uh, and indeed, I think the nature of alliance management is that allies are constantly assessing and reassessing the degree to which their security patron, the United States, is going to be there for them in a crisis or conflict. Uh, or the degree to which the United States might perhaps draw them into a conflict in which they do not want to participate. And the unpredictability of the Trump administration, both in its communications and I think in some of its early policy, nonetheless has them very worried. Uh, so I don't think the concerns are any more existential when it comes to the sanctity of formal alliances. Uh, but I think there are deep concerns that the United States' way of being in Asia may markedly differ from what it has been in the past and indeed may depart from 40 plus years of fairly consistent policy. And if I could just add two things very quickly, uh, Prime Minister Abe found a way to reach Donald Trump. That's right. By coming over to New York during the transition yep. and in the, the Gulf Summit yep. in Mar-a-Lago. And, and, and he was able to elicit some, I think, real promises from, from President Trump. Th that's right, if I could just put a point on that. Please. I, I think that that's absolutely worth noting. I think. U.S. partners and allies in Asia have been very pragmatic in their approach to this new president and trying to figure out how to connect with him personally and how to find mutual interests by which to advance the dialogue. But part of the reason Prime Minister Abe was able to do that, was able to show up in New York with a Golden Golf Club in the month of November, is because he has sky-high approval ratings in Japan. Um, so if, for example, you turn to Australia, where uh, Prime Minister Turnbull and President Trump had a very bad phone call in the first few weeks of the administration, Prime Minister Turnbull really had to distance himself. Um, and I think that just goes to show that a lot of this has to do with you know, a given ally or a given partner's domestic position, where they are with respect to their own people, and that's really gonna shape the way that these uncertainties play out in each of our relationships in Modi, Asia. Modi, like Abe, has sky-high yes. approval ratings. Yes. And Modi, like Abe, has visited Vietnam and keeps strengthening that relationship. Yes. And I think Modi, like Abe, is going to find a way to work very closely with the administration. I do as well. And if, I, if it makes the Asian allies feel better, um, I follow very closely our NATO relationships. And I can say that I think some of the Asian allies have made more progress yeah. with the Trump administration than, say, Germany has, our leading ally in Europe. So if that does put things in perspective. 
we were supposed to finish at 6 o'clock, but we had the fire alarm. <laughs> and so we don't want to shortchange anybody. Maybe we'll take two more questions, and then, um, and then we'll ask, we'll relieve the panel of their responsibilities. Yes. Yes. Hi, uh, thank you for taking my question. So something that I am curious about is um, there's been a lot of conversation about you know, Vietnam's strategic role as an ally in um, Asia. However, I feel that uh, this does not really take into account that Vietnam is more than just an ally because this is a place where you know, the U.S. has had a very, very long war. And so I guess like, what I'm curious about um, is how do you feel the differences in approaching this diplomatic situation is different for Vietnam versus like, other allies? You know, because of this long history, or because you know, in the U.S. there's actually a very large population of Vietnamese Americans, it puts the U.S. in a very unique position in negotiation with us. Well, as uh, as said at the outset, I think being honest about the past is crucial if you want to determine what the future is going to be like. Um, I've now had a chance to visit with Vietnamese Americans in uh, in Southern California and Washington State and. Houston and Northern Virginia and some of the places where that community is concentrated. And I am convinced that like with Indian Americans, that the diaspora is going to play an increasingly important role in that relationship. And I also think that the diaspora community is kind of at a turning point where uh, the people who are most bitter about the war for very good reasons, most bitter about fighting for a flag that doesn't exist against this flag. Uh, that, um, that element of the diaspora <clears throat> is becoming less active, and the younger, younger Vietnamese Americans are becoming more active, and younger Vietnamese are more interested in engagement with, the, with today's Vietnam than their elders. And so I think in the future what we're going to see, especially I think we're going to have direct flights soon, is a, that aperture opening up. And more and more people going back and forth as tourists, involved in education, working for NGOs as investors. And that's going to be hugely important in the relationship going forward. So it will be more important than any comparable relationship with a nation of you know, 93 million. It's, a, it's an asset. We didn't, when I worked in Indonesia, we didn't have that asset. There's a diaspora community, but it's much, much, much smaller. And the, uh, this one is not only large, but it's not captive of either party. I met with uh, Stephanie Dang Murphy, uh, who's a Democrat in Florida, Vietnamese American. And it's really, really interesting to see that community coming into, coming of age politically, as well as economically. And then, but the, the thing that is still going on is a process of reconciliation. Our governments have reconciled, thanks to John Kerry and John McCain and other uh, brave people who, when it was very, very difficult, decided to go for, for uh, normalization. The reconciliation process isn't over. But I, I am, I'm convinced that there are things that we can do to help honor the memories of those who fell on whatever side that will promote reconciliation. By tying ourselves together when it comes to educating young people so they will have a different future from that of their parents or their grandparents that will also help that process of reconciliation, of, uh, of sh sh uh, taking very seriously the concerns that that community has about human rights and religious freedom that will facilitate 
that process of reconciliation. I'm really determined to do that. Thank you. Final question. Dante, do you have a question? Oh, okay. Uh, Andy, right there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Uh, my name is Andy Vo, and I'm a second-year master's student at Harvard Kennedy School. Um, I have a question for all the panelists, and it echoes Amanda's question, actually, about human rights. Um, I, I appreciate the improvements in, in human rights that you mentioned, Ambassador Osius, um, but I think for the reasons Amanda mentioned and also for the lifting of the lethal weapons ban last May, you could argue that the United States has far less leverage um, in pushing the Vietnamese government to improve its human rights, to have future improvements like the ones you mentioned. So I guess my question is really, you know, now that we've lifted the, the weapons ban, what sources of leverage do we have to influence the Vietnamese government to improve their human rights? And could I just maybe ask each member of the panel to answer that question in the way that they would like to? So for instance, Mira, you might help us make the case for a stronger security relationship. What, what are the arguments on that side? Because there are arguments on both sides. Ted, we'll start with you. That's quite relevant because I think as you strengthen the relationship across the board, you increase our ability to influence the decisions that are being made about human rights and creating more space for people to express themselves. Uh, when we negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, there was a very strong labor codicil that for the first time called for independent trade unions. And this is capitalists telling communists how to treat their workers. It's kind of ironic. Uh, but, the, but we were able to do it because Vietnam wanted that strong relationship with us. And what has astonished me since we've shelved TPP is that Vietnam is going ahead with all those reforms. I don't know that all of the labor reforms will be, will be implemented to the degree that we negotiated them, but all the other, uh, the all, there's, there are changes in the labor code that, that are all headed in that direction. And there are changes in how Vietnam is dealing with IPR, uh, with state-owned enterprises, with all the issues that we negotiated. And the way the Vietnamese leaders have put it is, hey, we, we wanted those reforms anyway. And we, we agreed to those reforms because they're good for us. And I think in the end, that's the way Vietnamese are going to view freedom of expression as well. As in the end, if you want to succeed in today's world, you have to be able to innovate. You have to be able to uh, educate people and have them ask questions and not just learn in a rote way and accept what is handed down to them. Uh, and I think that, that you know, you look at something like Vietnam 2035, the blueprint for moving from lower middle income status to upper middle income status, and Vietnamese leadership has clearly accepted the idea that there's going to be continued opening, and yeah, it, it uh, will cause consternation in some quarters, but it's what's needed to move the, that country into a place where it's more innovative, more open, more engaged with the world, and yes, more respectful of human rights. Yeah. I'll, I'll add on to that and say that I do think indeed that uh, defense-related security engagements can have much broader salutary effects on the bilateral relationship. As an example, and this comes not from lethal weapons, but from non-lethal defense discussions, uh, the Pentagon has learned a great deal in just the last couple of years from engaging with Vietnamese partners through the Maritime Security Initiative. The Maritime Security Initiative is a maritime domain awareness initiative that includes five countries in Asia 
and the aim is to build a multilateral domain awareness architecture in and around the South China Sea. Uh, the first year that this program was in effect, the bulk of the money went to the Philippines, even though Vietnam uh, had the opportunity uh, to get quite a bit of the money as well. And there were a lot of lessons learned from that tranche of funding because, in fact, the Pentagon found that it didn't actually know how to work with its Vietnamese counterparts nearly as well as it might have wanted to. In fact, because the United States and Vietnam did not have a historical defense relationship, counterparts in Vietnam didn't know what to ask for when it came to this program. They didn't know how to express what they were looking for out of this program in a way that made sense to their Pentagon interlocutors and vice versa. And because they had this experience of going through a year of this funding and the Pentagon wasn't able to give money to Vietnam the way that it wanted to, they realized that they had to make that channel of communication better and they had to sync up their efforts to try to build this maritime domain awareness architecture. This is just an example because, of course, I'm not talking about lethal weapons and indeed uh, our partners in Vietnam have not been clamoring to buy uh, lethal weapons from the United States in large quantities, but this is to say uh, that these channels have the ability for the bilateral relationship overall to be strengthened as both sides figure out what they're trying to work towards um, and understand the way that each of them works individually as a government. Thank you. John, you're I would just br br briefly add to what um, Amira said by saying in other contexts, and I know the Vietnam case uh, less well uh, than I do some others, we have used military-to-military -military connectivity and ties uh, to inculcate, to try to start to inculcate a culture of respect uh, for, for basic rights through security services. And I think that can be, since, since uh, unfortunately on the other end of the spectrum, security services are often the ones uh, who, who are out uh, violating in the absence of training, in the absence of standards, uh, that can be quite uh, important to, to fostering a culture of human rights as well. Um, I, uh, earlier in response to a question, gave uh, the sort of dark and dreary version of uh, the current state of, of American uh, soft power. The other side of that coin, fortunately, is that the government is not the only entity that wields uh, soft power in the United States. And in fact, uh, arguably, the vast uh, majority of American soft power is not wielded by governments. It's wielded by private entities, by corporations, um, in this relationship, uh, potentially by a diaspora community that is not going to uh, accept and tolerate uh, the, the, to the extent it's going to increase its, its influence over uh, the relationship. Uh, the mistreatment of, of citizens uh, to which they have an increasing uh, connection. So I don't think we should underestimate the fact that even if and as uh, budgets are cut and programs that have been successful in the past on the government side uh, fall by the wayside, which I think they will, and I'm less sanguine uh, than, than Ted, I will say, about uh, the commitment of, of some people in the current leadership uh, to these human rights uh, questions, whether the Asia specialists are, are remain committed or not, and I don't question uh, that they do, I do think there are other entities in American society that will continue to pick up uh, the fight and pick up uh, the, the torch. And I don't, uh, I, I don't want to say that that will, be, um, you know, that will be enough and that will be, uh, you know, inevitably replace uh, the, the damage that will be done, but it is something to, to place our, our hope in, I think, going forward. I think this has been a very rich discussion. I want to thank John Finer and through him Secretary Kerry for the extraordinary work that the Obama team the administration and our Secretary of State and John did to bring our two countries closer together. I want to thank Dr. Mira Rapp Hooper for her extraordinary depth of expertise on security issues and on the vital security link between the United States and our Asian partners. And I really want to say how proud we are of Ambassador Oshis as a Harvard graduate and a Johns Hopkins graduate, <laughs> uh, who's represented us with such distinction and to feel the respect from many of you who spoke to him. 
it's really quite satisfying for all of us. So Ted, welcome back to Harvard. Thanks, Thanks to you all. Thanks for being here. Thanks. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash. <laughs>